Go ahead and flip to John 21. John 21, we're going to look at the rest of the book. We're finishing out the book this week. And uh, next week, Lord willing, I intend to do a series um, sort of on psychology, but more on emotions and specifically the, um, reconstructing our emotions, guilt, those types of things. Uh, I just find it to be a fitting study that, that the Lord has put on my heart, especially um, given the Reformed tradition tends to be very cerebral. How do we view emotion, emotion in light of that? How do we deal with guilt? How do we deal with those things? So that'll be the next series. I think we're going to do like four weeks on it-ish. So um, kind of a, a, a territory I have not really explored. So for me, I'm looking forward to the challenge. And, uh, you know, we have a whole book called Lamentations. There's a reason for that. So um, we need to explore that. So John 21, and I'm going to pray. And then we'll walk through it. And uh, again, as been our more newer custom, I'm going to just comment as we go to give you some context. And then we'll pull out what I call application and persuasion because I want you to think and I want to think the way the Bible thinks. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, and for him being the Lamb who was slain for the salvation of the world. We glorify you now as we look at your word. And so we ask that your spirit would help us to hear, to digest, and to apply what it is you have for us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. John 21, look at verse 1. After these things, Jesus manifested, he revealed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, that's the Sea of Galilee, and he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter, notice the number of disciples here, there's one, and Thomas called Didymus, or the twin, that's two, and Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, three, the sons of Zebedee, we have James and John, that's five if you're counting, and two others, that's seven. Two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Now, just for a second, think of if you've ever gone, I went to Africa in 2009 for the first time, and I got back, flew into, J, it wasn't JFK, it was Newark, and I did not know how to act for like two weeks because I had just gone from my world being flipped upside down to going into villages where you literally sleep in dirt, you know, huts. An, an experience I'd, I never had had before. Life-changing. Um, so this culture shock, we call it, you come back from, from a place like that and you're not entirely sure how to, how to act. <laughs> and you end up feeling things you've never felt, you think differently, your worldview is shaped and impacted. Uh, it's quite a disjointed experience, we can call it. Imagine Peter. The disciples had just watched their Lord die. They saw the blood in the water. They saw their king crucified. He was taken down off the cross. He was put in a tomb in a, in a, in a the only body put there. Jesus died alone. And then he was raised, and Peter and John raced to the tomb. John wins because he's the young buck. And Peter looks, goes in, he sees the, the, you know, the um, garments there, the wrappings there. Jesus' body's gone. Um, Mary Magdalene has an experience with Jesus outside the tomb. And think, she thinks he's the gardener, and he is. He's the new Adam making a new world, that sort of thing. And 
Then they go back, and they're in the room, and here's Jesus. He's a, he appears to them. That was the first time. And then the second time he appears, and that was the Thomas, who shouldn't be called Doubting Thomas, but un, Unbelieving Thomas. He believes. And then there's this third appearance. Now, imagine experiencing all of that, and Peter. what does Peter decide to do? He says, I'm going fishing. I need a break. I don't know. Maybe he's thinking that. This major event happens, and Peter Peter goes back to work the next day. What a weekend that is. And then, of course, this was a time afterwards. Um, but he goes back to work. And the disciples, of course, they said to him, Well, we will also come with you. What else are we supposed to do? <laughs> I mean, Jesus is alive, and he keeps showing up at random places. I guess we'll go fishing. We'll go to work. And they do go fishing. So they, the disciples come with them. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now, keep in mind Luke 5 that was just read in the background, because that happened early on in their ministry. The same thing's repeated, and there's a reason for it. So they catch nothing all night. But when the day was now breaking, probably like 6 a.m., literally all night, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. They didn't know it was him. Verse 5, So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, No. Like, you ever had that moment of deja vu? Like, I've, I've, um, not to be too corny in my puns, but something's fishy, right? And, uh, yeah. Jacqueline, I know you like puns. Where are you? Did you like that one? Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, they don't have any fish. They've done it all night. They're tired, perhaps a little, uh, you know, the beard's overgrown. They haven't been able to shave in a while, whatever the case. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find a catch. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Hmm. We've seen this before. <laughs> Therefore, the disciple whom Jesus loved, presumably John, he leaned over, he says to Peter, it is the Lord. Like, duh, obviously. <laughs> this guy says the same thing that Jesus had said before, before he was glorified in his resurrection. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put, out his, armor, he put his outer garment on, for it was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. You should know that Peter is reminiscing why did he lunge himself into the sea? Peter tends to be a little uh, flamboyant, shall we say? A little excitable. He finds out that it's the Lord. He puts his outer garment on, jumps in the sea. I, I can tell you what Peter's feeling. Perhaps a sense of excitement, but also a conflicted feeling because he remembers back in Luke 5, hey, um, Remember when he says, look, I'm a sinner. Depart from me. Peter's reminded of his sin. He's reminded. He's probably still feeling the guilt of denial, of denying, having denied the Lord. <coughs> so he jumps in. But the other disciples came in a little boat, for they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. The net is full. So when they got um, out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. In a second, I'll explain that. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. 
So John has a funny way of talking about unity. The net's not torn. There was unity in the fish. There was unity. Like there's there's symbolism here. Now why 153? Well, because there wasn't 182. There's 153. They probably would have counted them. But there's kind of you know a history of interpretation where wild speculation happens. Um, I think it was Augustine who was the one that said you know. 153, the triangular number of that is 17. So if you take 17 and you add it to 16 and then 15 and 14 and all the way down, you get 153. And Augustine said, well, look, like 17 is clearly 10 commandments and the sevenfold spirit. Bang. Now that's just a wild guess. And, you know, a lot of times that happened. But remember who wrote this book and who also wrote the book of Revelation? Um, you've heard gematria before. It's this idea of taking numbers. Um, in Hebrew, your letters had num numerical value. So if you took your first name and, and we, A was 1, B 2, all the way to 26, right? There are 26 letters in the alphabet. I always forget. Kids, you should know this. <laughs> it's important, apparently. <laughs> but you add up your name, you get, it's, a, it's a certain numerical value. This was a popular thing. So when John says the number of the beast is 666, not three sixes, 666. Um, Neron Kaisar in Hebrew spells out, it works out perfectly. And coincidentally, in Latin, it ends up being 616, which we have Latin manuscripts that say that, interestingly enough. So somebody had a brain and knew what was going on, and John is one of those guys. So I think the number is supposed to mean something else. And, and I had one convincing argument from a theologian that I think makes sense, and just to whet your whistle, here you go. Here's Ezekiel 47.10. Ezekiel 47.10 says this, Fishermen will stand beside the sea. This is the great vision of the temple and the water coming out, Ezekiel's temple. From Engedi to Englaim, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of every, of, of every many kinds, of very many kinds, excuse me, like the fish of the great sea. Um, John's already connected all the dots. The temple is the church. Jesus is the temple. You know, the water flows from him. That's Ezekiel's vision. He gives that task to the church. Um, we're the new Eden where the waters flow to fill out to the earth. There's all this symbolism. And, and it, the argument is, you, the two words, en gedi to englaim. En means spring in Hebrew. And then you have gedi and, and um, englaim. Gedi is actually the numerical value of 17. And coincidentally, Eglayam is the numerical value of 153. So, is this a plausible argument? I think you can make the argument in terms of literary argument and literature. It's not just wild guess. There's a connection of fish and the number. That was the exact number. That's what they counted. John probably is making the connection just like he does in Revelation with 666. He's making it back to the very foundational passage. Um, I, I think that's a interesting thought. Um, but hey, it could be just wild speculation. The fish clearly represent the nations, by the way. Clearly. You're going to be fishers of men, Gentiles, that stuff. So they, they bring it in, the net's not torn. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Jesus serves them breakfast. He's a great host. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord kind of a humbling moment. <laughs> Who else does weird things like getting all the fish on the other side? That's Jesus. We know. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. Remember, he had already given bread and fish to the multitudes. 
This is now the third time, notice that, the third time Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the, vet, from the dead, verse 14. So now the number three is in your mind. Here we go with another set of number threes. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you agapio me more than these? Do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I phileo love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Same word, agapio, the verb, do you love me? Do you, it's affection type of love. Do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And the same <laughs> Greek word again, phileo, means more of like a, a brotherly love, an even deeper love connection, if you will, with someone. He said to him then, shepherd my sheep. That's where we get the word pastor from. It's the idea of shepherding, that sort of thing. Verse 17, he said to him the third time, notice the three again, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then he changes the word there <clears throat> to what the word that Peter keeps saying, phileo. Peter was grieved <clears throat> because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Three denials, three affirmations. Restoration of Peter, that's the forgiveness and the feeding. Peter needs to be restored in order to carry out the work of the church. He has to be brought close to Jesus and understand his mission. He needs forgiveness. He denied Jesus. He's feeling guilty, as he should be, and he needs the restoration of our Lord. Verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself up and walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, he said, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. Peter was crucified upside down. His hands stretched out. A, clearly a prophetic moment for our Lord. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. There's the language of follow me that's in Matthew and Luke. Not so much in John, but it's here at the very end. Follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Pointing out John. So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? This is a fascinating text. What about this man? Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come. Some commentators say the second coming. I don't know what I think on this. What is that to you? You follow me. What is that to you, what the calling I have on this man? You are to follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that that, that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say that, that he would not die, but only if you want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? What's, it's, you know, it's not your prerogative. This is, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And thus the end of John. So, application persuasion. Obviously the passage before us is an epilogue. It's an epilogue, the end, or the summary, the end of the book. And scholars obviously disagree on when it was actually written, if it was written later on or somebody had added it, or maybe it was you know, found and it was not a part of the scroll early on. We, we don't know. But I, I, think, I think it's the perfect ending to John's gospel. And I'll, I'll tell you why. 
We know from chapter 20 that there were plenty of other signs that Jesus performed that weren't written in the book. And obviously, John has a very intentional purpose. He's chosen what he has chosen to tell the story of Jesus in such a way as to provoke us. It's a very provocative gospel. It humbles us. And the purpose that he says back in the end of chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 there, the purpose is to spur on belief in the Christian community, a community who was persecuted, who suffered immensely. And he wants them to believe on Jesus Christ. And obviously this isn't just an intellectual assent. This is a belief that looks like faith in action. Faith in your home. Faith in the world. Faith in your local church, your community, your, this fellowship of the saints. Those types of things. So this last section is John's way of driving his point home. Jesus is raised. Now what? Jesus is raised, so what? What does that mean? Is he just going to hang out with us forever? Or what is, what's supposed to happen? So central to John's intentions, I've already laid that out in the title of the message, central are the paradigms of forgiveness and feeding. That's Peter being restored in order to be sent out as a shepherd. And also the concepts, though, of fishing and global conquest. The two things are tied together. The disciples... They are sent into the world as Jesus was sent in the world, right? As you have sent me, Father, so I send them. That was part of the chapter 20 as well. So the epilogue is clearly John's great commission. This is John's great commission statement. Mark has a very little one, you know, preach the gospel to all the creation. Matthew has the one we love about all authority in heaven and on earth. Go make disciples, teach them to observe, right? Baptize them, teach them. Teach the nations to observe. That's um, the fish that we're talking about. And Luke kind of tally, t- you know, takes a great commission and he ties it to his second volume, the book of Acts. So it's an epilogue, yes, but it's John's great commission. This is the final word for the church. Now, while there is obviously much we could say, I just chose to focus on a few things. And to start, obviously, we need to start with Jesus. Jesus shows himself to his disciples in what has become typical fashion. They fished all night, just like before, right? And they haven't caught a thing, just like before. That's intentional. The first time Jesus helped them to bring in the hall, he told them they would be fishers of men. Do you think that they even understood what that meant? Probably not. Probably not. I think it's safe to say they didn't know. Again, Luke 5. So here, he's now teaching them exactly what that means. The only way the nations are going to come to Christ, the only way the gospel is going to succeed, the only way the disciples are going to endure the criticism, the pushback, the death threats, the prison time, the only way they're going to do that, the only way the sins of the world are going to be forgiven, right, as they disciple the nations, the only way that's going to happen is by the power and authority of Jesus Christ. The only way the sins of the world are going to be forgiven as they disciple the nations, is by the power and authority of Christ and his word. That's it. That's why they couldn't catch anything. That's why when he spoke the word in Luke 5 and now in John 21, they reached over the other side of the boat and brought in a hall. And a hall that only Jesus knew exactly how much to put in there. So fishing men and gathering nations does not happen in our own strength. It doesn't happen on our own intellect. It doesn't happen on our own will, our own volition. It just doesn't happen that way. Warrington is not going to be discipled into the comprehensive faith as we build a social order 
and we do what we do in our communities and engage where we engage and press where we press and serve where we serve and do all these things, it's never going to happen in God's kingdom by our strength and our might. And you think, why did God tell Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, don't, don't say, you know, it's by my strength and by my might that we've done this. Why did God tell them that? Because they would think that. We could think that too. We could think that we could accomplish a whole bunch of stuff in our community, in, our, in Northern Virginia, in this nation. We think we can do a whole lot in our own strength. But we mustn't do that. This second miracle of fish illustrates the power of God over the nations. And it demonstrates that, really to the disciples, that the only way that they can do greater works, remember Jesus said that they would do greater works than these, is by staying close to Christ and His Spirit. And that's abiding in the vine, right? John 15, abiding. Fishing men and conquering the globe, that's the task. That's, what, that's the long-term goal. That's what we want. But it can only happen... It can only happen in God's sovereign timing, on God's sovereign terms. Jordan, when you prayed, that I was really with you on that. When we pray for the abolition of abortion, and we act in the abolition, and we, when we do what we do, this comprehensive faith, we have to have a category for this judgment happening on God's terms. And we're going to be faithful. That's our task. That's it. That's your task to be faithful. But it's God's sovereign timing. And it's according to His plan. All of this is God's sovereign timing. Now, so we should obviously have no trouble in seeing this incident here as a preview of coming attractions, specifically Pentecost, when God's Spirit is poured out and the ingathering of the nations and thousands are, are drawn in and Peter's bold and preaching, you know, Peter who wanted to go back and fish and maybe retire after that long three years of chaos. But he's not going to stop. He's going to go and preach in the authority of Christ. That's the movement of the gospel in the first century. I think, Jordan, you alluded to it last week in your message um, where Paul does in Romans and Galatians. He says the gospel went to the nations. Does it still need to go? Yeah, it still need to go. But it went. It went out. See, the, the hall of what we'll call fish nations on the right side only happened because of Christ's word and authority. That's the only way it happened. Now, we also need to deal with Peter. We have to deal with that guy. <laughs> Jesus has chosen Peter. Peter's the first among equals. He's the leader of the disciples. He's the shepherd. But before he can properly function as one, he needs to be restored to the fold. Because right now he ran away. He's the one of the 99 that ran away. That's Peter. He denied Jesus, the sheep scattered when the shepherd was struck, right? That's how this whole thing works out. So he is a sheep who does hear the shepherd's voice, but he's a sheep who has wandered off. Peter, if you recall, again, he denied Jesus three times. So what does Jesus do? Does Jesus make him breakfast and say, tisk tisk, Peter? Does he shame him into repentance? No. He's already got enough shame. He's already got enough guilt. Does he say, well, Peter, you should have known better. I told you what was going to happen. No. Does he do something else? Well, yes. What Jesus does is remarkably unthinkable. It's unthinkable to us. When someone betrays us, what do we do? Right? We'd rather get bitter. We'd rather get angry. We'd rather write them off. We'd rather say, you know what? That's, 
that that's so them. That's how they are. And then we, you know, grunt and moan and take our ball and go home. But we learn a lot about Jesus in this moment. But let me tell you what we learn a lot about is God. Jesus goes straight into the pain, right? He goes straight into the pain. Where you're hurting, Jesus goes right into it with you. Jesus goes right into the pain. And I mean, think about it. The audacity of Jesus bringing Peter back to another coal fire. That's a bold move. The audacity of Jesus the Lord to bring Peter back to a coal fire when he knows very well the first coal fire is where he denied him. So Peter walks up to the coal fire. No doubt he smelled regret. He smelled betrayal. He smelled remorse. He smelled contrition. But most of all, let me tell you what he smelled. He smelled his sin. And it reeked. And Jesus, he's not shy about bringing to Peter the fruit of his sin. Because, and children, you should know this too. When we sin and when we disobey, you need to know that that fruit is yours to eat. It's yours. And you might try to force it on others to eat. Because we're good at that. But it's yours to eat. If it's your fruit, you grew it, it's yours. And if it's rotten, you have to eat it. See, Jesus brings Peter along. He shows him his sin. He gives the fruit of his sin so that Peter can see what it is. And then he can repent of it the way God's, that God wants him to repent of it. See, on the third appearance, Jesus goes and he asks him three times for the testimony. Give me a confession. Why do we say the Apostles' Creed? Why does it start with, I believe? Because Christianity is a, a confessional faith. That's our faith. We confess it. Peter needs a confession. Jesus gives him opportunity and he affirms three times. And Peter is charged with feeding and preaching and teaching the gospel, with shepherding and guiding and pastoring. That is the task. In short, listen, the missionary activity of the church. The missionary activity of the church looks a lot like shepherding sheep. When you're out on the streets, Ron, or Matt, or any of us when we go, are you out there able to put on your glasses and see who's a sheep and who's a goat? Right? I mean, how, how do you preach to the elect? You don't know who they are. That's the point. That's the point. Because when you're out preaching and we're out shepherding, when you're talking with somebody at work, uh, children, when we're talking to you or your friends or we're engaged in this huge thing we call life, whatever we're doing, we're shepherding. We're feeding, we're restoring, we're bringing sheep into the fold that are out wandering off. That's what the missionary activity of the church looks like. Sometimes it looks like a war zone, but I think the point John's making is sometimes it looks like shepherding sheep. Obstinate, stubborn sheep who sometimes wander off, who are sometimes just too dumb to know what's going on, to know that that wolf is clearly coming to eat him. Well, I'll just stand here and watch. See, Peter takes primacy here only because Peter is a primary forgiven sinner. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. See, the best under-shepherds are the ones who know what it's like to walk away, who know what it's like to deny Jesus, who know what deep inside what it's like to need Christ more than anything else. Um, sometimes the best ministers to drug addicts are former drug addicts. 
Sometimes the best ministers to those who may be feeling depressed or despondent are those who maybe are doing the same thing. That's the, that's the kingdom. People who know what it's like to need Christ more than anything else, that's what discipleship looks like. And you see, Jesus, he's given us and his disciples, he gave, and us, us, he's given us a revolutionary calling. They are sent into the world as he was sent into the world. So in the same manner and consistency of Christ's labor and work, the disciples are called to do the same very thing. There's a time to preach and push and press. And then there's time to nurture and shepherd. There's a whole, a whole process to this thing. See, the, they who have the new creation life breathed over them. This is the Spirit of God, the Advocate Spirit. But the point is, is in order for us to achieve, to achieve the feeding of the lambs, the fishing, the global conquest, all of it. We must rely solely on Christ. We can't do it in our own strength. The fact that they fished all night and did not catch a single fish indicates the frustration of trying to do life your own way. I think the reason they didn't catch fish is because Jesus knew that they were there. God did not permit them to catch a single fish to teach them something. You can't do it alone. You can't do it alone. Right? It, not catching a fish indicates the frustration of trying to do life, life on your own way. Our task then, we should admit defeat. Admit it. Not defeat in the kingdom. Not defeat in worldwide conquest. Admit the futility of doing this our own way. Right? Admit, admit that our own jostling about is going to produce nothing. And once we've done that, we can listen to the shepherd's voice afresh, do what he says, and watch God work among us. And this means that our work must be connected to Christ, for apart from him we can do nothing. He's already told us that in John 15. There is no go-it-alone Christianity, meaning, meaning that we have a fresh challenge that sits before us, a fresh and renewed mission that requires each of us to stay connected to the vine. See, Christ's work is now our work. He gave it over to you. When he said that my father is working until now and I am working, he meant that his work is going to fix our lack of work because we're all enemies of Christ apart from him, right? We have to stay connected, but the key is going in the power of his work, in the power of his word. And this is gospel-centered thinking. That's not just sloganeering. It's us being filled by the Holy Spirit each day as we prayerfully focus our attention on the things that God has placed before us, not the things that God hasn't placed before us. Catch that, because I don't want you to miss this. Your job is to be filled with the Spirit, giving attention to the things that God has placed before us, not the things that God hasn't placed before us. What's it to you? You follow me. See, God has called you and I to faithfulness. He has not called us to the task of worrying ourselves to death about others. And this is the way, this is really the point Jesus made to Peter about him meddling in John's business of following Jesus. We should concern ourselves with matters of injustice, matters of sin, matters of great import. But guess what? Our main purpose is to be obedient to God and what God has in front of us right now. We are to be faithful all the way through, all the way to the end, faithful in what's on your plate, what's not, not on your plate. Moms, you have something right before you. Little shoots that are growing. That's what you have to do. That's what God has in front of you right now. 
Fathers, you, you're, you're at work. You're laboring. You have that right in front of you. See, your job is to follow Jesus wherever he leads you, not wherever he leads the person next to you. And that's the principle of the division of labor. There's overlap. There's collaboration. You know, all that within the ecclesia. Um, strategic partnerships, working with folks like Street Church and our friends over there and, and laboring for the kingdom because that's what matters most, not fog machines and lights, right? But the underlying issue is the single-minded following of Jesus. And when we do this, there is no place, there's no time or place for unholy speculation about the discipleship of others. What's it to you? You follow me. And thus the mission of the church, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the world made flesh. He has come to restore you to himself so that in him, in his power, in his gospel, in his death and resurrection, you may intimately be connected to him and follow him as he guides you into the world for the sake of proclaiming the inexhaustible glories of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we glorify you. We thank you for this text. We thank you for the challenge that's set before us. Um, we readily admit that apart from you, we can do nothing. And we confess that the reason you told us that is because there is the chance and likelihood that we will think we can do it apart from you. We thank you that you restored Peter and thus you've restored us. You have brought us in by your spirit. You have hauled us and you've dragged us into this kingdom for your glory. You have cleaned us up. You have situated us in a place and a time. And we want to glorify you. So we ask that you would help us to be faithful. Help us to proclaim this lamb who takes away the sins of the world. God, we thank you for um, John's gospel. We thank you for your word that we can learn and about you. We can learn about how you function and how we are supposed to function. But most importantly, we are thankful that you have brought us near to you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.